0: Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top, the body-positive, sex-positive show with your host, Auntie Weiss. This show contains explicit language, not suitable for most minors or easily offended majors. It contains opinionated discussion about politics, race, sex, fat folks, gender, which may not be suitable for conservatives. Additionally, some shows may contain references to science, statistics, history, research, mathematics, and reality, which may not be suitable for American evangelicals. Hi, and welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This is your host, Auntie Vice. Today, we had two guests with a lot to say, so I'm just doing a short intro. Our first guest is Co Creation. They join us to talk about their new book, This Heart Holds Many. Co grew up in a polyamorous, sex positive household in the Northwest in the 90s. They talk about what it was like to grow up like that, what their values were, and how values that are different than the mainstream culture have affected their lives now. Next, we're joined by Amy Estes, who's a comic and a yoga teacher in Sacramento. And Amy joining us to talk to us about what she learned about her body from comedy and intentional eating. We realize at Fat Chicks that talking about diet culture and dieting can be triggering and bothersome to some of our listeners. Amy's interview does talk explicitly about diet culture, about how she broke from diet culture, and her new approach to food. So let this be your content warning. We hope you enjoy the show. And please remember to like, subscribe, and leave comments for us. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. Thanks for staying with us. This is Auntie Vice. I'm here with Co-Creation. They uh, are an author, an educator. They have a new book coming out called This Heart Holds Many, My Life, as a non-binary millennial child of a polyamorous family. They travel around the country teaching people and have amazing Instagram sites. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Auntie Vice. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, it's great to have you on your show. I was so excited to see you were finally dropping a book. We, we, you know, we've met kind of in passing, and and you know our sound guy. You know, you have this fascinating history, and to see it finally coming out um, in a book, it, it's really unique. Do you want to give our listeners just a little? Overview of what the book is about and why this is groundbreaking.
1: Oh my goodness. What an intro. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I, hello, hello. My name is Co Creation. I call myself the second generation sex educator for the 21st century. And basically, what that means is that I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the 90s in the counterculture. Affinity groups they're in. So, uh, what this book focuses on is my sex positive and polyamorous raising within a tribe of incredibly awesome people who definitely came out of like an older generation of poly and like discovered the word together and were figuring things out. So, it was a time where non monogamy and polyamory were happening, but there wasn't a lot of support around it. And so there weren't too many other polyamorous youth that I knew who were outside of my family and tribe. But fortunately, Seattle at the time was a big tribe. And there was a lot of like wealth of information and resource there that I have just like been thinking about for the past 10 years and decided that I wanted to see that story told. Um and hopefully it will inspire other second-generation non-monogamous and polyamorous, etc., people to, like, talk about their stories. Because I know that we're out there now, and I would love to connect. This is a way to, like, give some voice and reach out and find my people and be representative of a childhood that I feel is incredibly unique and valuable to, like, how people can build empathy, and community with each other now.
0: I can totally see that. Yeah. You talk about being second-generation poly, and for folks who uh, practice polyamory, who read about polyamory, there are lots of different ways of practicing about it. You're in the Bay Area now, and The Gate came out with an article a couple days ago, and the first line was, you know, everybody in San Francisco is polyamorous, but everybody does it really badly. Oh.
1: (laughs) I hadn't read that
0: one yet. <laughs> and well, it's it's a, because so many people use the word, but mean radically different things. And you talk about being second generation. So when you were growing up, can we start with what polyamory looked like in the 90s and what you saw growing up? And then talk about a little bit about how you practice it now, if you've seen it evolve or change, or if it's still pretty much the same as when you were growing up. Mm, absolutely.
1: So when I was growing up, as, as I mentioned a minute ago, I lovingly have talked to my parents about being from what I like to call the Heinlein generation. And it, it may well have been that I was around a bunch of sci-fi nerds who read Robert Heinlein's work, specifically The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, is the one that was talked about a lot in my childhood. And there was the idea of building like, building tribe and structure through that in a like, longevity kind of way. And that honestly was a huge source point for a lot of the ideology and hope that my parents were engaging in around both their tribe building and their polyamory and like interpreting, (laughs) interpreting works from the mid, mid 20th century. They were trying to live that out, you know, in, in a time that was changing rapidly. So I think that there was a lot more pair bonding that they were doing that wasn't really being um, acknowledged because everybody was like, no, we're building tribes. Um, And I think it's important to note that like my, like, like I've said, my family calls itself a tribe. I can also call it extended networking style of memory, meaning that like you want to have a web of people. So within that, I think there were like pretty solid pair bonds of people who were married or people who lived together or you know, some such. And because our tribe was so big, we didn't all live in the same house, which really helped it feel like a network. So we would go to, you know, the uh, Wiggles house. They had a like big house far away. And so we'd have like big weekend events there. And then we would go to like, you know, the Cerulean house for like a weekly, th- you know, weekly jam or like Aerosong house for a potluck. Like these were all households that were connected to the tribe via like Polly and the communities that we built around that. So that's really my frame and structure. Um, I lived with my biological mother uh, for all of my life. And then through that, my unit was my biological mother, um, my biological father, who were romantic, but not all the time. Like they hadn't been romantic. They haven't been romantic in a long time, but they are definitely uh, co-parents and life partners. I teased them that they have to do everything at the same time. Like they both (laughs) just got married to their new partners last year.
0: That's (laughs) sweet. That's actually really sweet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I had them and then my biological uncle married my biological mother's best friend. And so she became my aunt, but because Polly, she had also dated my biological father. So (laughs) it it was this really interesting set of like my biological uncle and my mom essentially, you know, they were always around. And then they have a lifelong partner as well, who's my other mom. And so I have three moms, one uncle, one bio dad. They are my collection of five parents. And then I'm also of a generation where we never quite fully figured out the like mom, mama yeah. thing. Um, so I tend to call them by their names. Uh, we have Angie, Jean, and Phoebe. So um, Jean has two biological children as well. And they are my siblings. Like, we grew up together. One of them is four months older than I am, and the other is five years younger than we are. So we were just like, peas in a pod. And though they're not biological, they 100% are my siblings, which also, I think, is a cool allegory to, like, step-siblings, you know, and how you can create family and live with family, though, like, they're not biological. And that nurture aspect still... Still behind you, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds really like you know, people who use the the term, you know, it takes a village, you know, the idea that it takes more than one person or one, you know, biological family unit, little to raise a kid. And even for someone like me who grew up in a nuclear family, I grew up on a farm with my grandparents, and my aunts, and uncles, and everybody living around. And it makes a difference when you have that. Was it different, though, between having, like, some people have extended families or multi-generational homes and stuff to help raise a kid. How does poly put a different spin spin on it? Or is it pretty much the same thing, except there's a romantic connection here and there? Good
1: distinction. And so this is where it gets kind of interesting for me, is that I've definitely been talking about polyamory as familial. And that's my first association with polyamory, which I think is unique to a second-generation person. So... When I was looking around, I was seeing PDA, uh, public displays of of affection. I was seeing people negotiating date nights. I was seeing multiple people parenting me, but it was all just a part of the world. So then as I grew up, I started to have my own feelings about how I wanted to engage in the family based on more and more knowledge. So like at a certain point, I had I went through a modesty phase. Because everybody was naked all the time because casual nudity was a thing. But then I was like, well, I feel like nudity is different in different ways. And I don't want to participate in that. And so I told everybody, like, I don't want to be naked. Please stop patting me on the butt. Don't comment on my body. And they were like, okay. But I had to come to those realizations. You know, I had to come to the realization that I didn't like hearing sexy noises now that I knew what was up. You know, I didn't want to hear that. And so then we had to negotiate from there. One of the key things that I talk about in the book is age appropriateness. So my understanding and my development, like I just talked about, was uh, because my parents were very, very good at giving me information in a way that I could actually process and handle, right? So it might get a little graphic, but scientific at the same time. But like how I discovered testicles was this like ongoing process, because at first, it was like I didn't know what was going on and then I knew that I needed to stop hitting my brother in the groin when we were wrestling and that was really important for some reason even though I found it hilarious. And then later on like we started talking about like both arousal and reproduction, you know? And so it was like it was a multi-step process in figuring out like what this thing is. And in that way, there was never one conversation where it was like, "Okay, here's all the download of like, you know, here's what sex is, here's what sex positivity is, here's what polyamory is." It was I was able to discover it naturally, and I really appreciated that. And that's one of the reasons that I I advocate, if you possibly can, being out with your children in your poly, in your non monogamy and polyamory. Um, I also realized real quick that. Uh, To answer your question about how I've seen it evolve, one of the key things that I've been noticing in my growing up and still being a polyamorous person myself is that people are still working from this idea of pair bonding and that that is okay. You know, um, I've seen that evolve from like we're married and we're opening up to we're primaries to we're anchors to, you know, like it's okay to look for that person who helps you feel grounded and then connect from there i also have seen like a uh swing in a direction from there in this idea of non-hierarchy and and not rule focused like a, a distinct aversion to structure which i've seen in relationship anarchy and i've seen in in non-hierarchical poly and i've also seen in the removal of the term like the term polyamory like i'm not that thing i'm non-monogamous I'm open, I'm into a lot of stuff, you know, I've heard a lot of In that way, I think that we're in um, an interesting time of trying to figure out how, what actually all the different stylings of non-monogamy are and how you build ethics in each of them. Because I think that's the unifying factor, is that we want to live non-monogamously, ethically.
0: And I think that's where a lot of people, especially as they're new to it, have some difficulty. Right. If you've grown up with it, if you've been practicing it for a while, you start to develop a sense of ethics and how this works and how you have healthy relationships versus I don't want to commit to any one person and just want to screw around. And there are definitely those people who call themselves polyamorous. But what they want to mean is I want to screw around with no commitment. And,
1: And one of the things that I'm noticing, like, in to tie it back to, like, my family is. So from my perspective and why I focused a lot on like explaining the tribal aspect is I'm discovering in my poly that pair bonding is actually interesting and challenging for me because I didn't have that. I mean, like I looked at different pair bonds, but they were all sort of in the network and my particular parents were not pair bonded in the same way. So I look up and I'm like, well, yeah, we should all be doing a thing. and then. So for me, the, there's a growth pattern in learning how to pair bond. So it's not just that like, people need to shake off like, what conditioning they have about how to relate. They just, like you said, need to learn like, how to do it in healthy ways and, and where your growth places are.
0: Yeah, and I think all of us have those. It, you know, we learn various things from our childhood, from culture. But as you go out into the world, that only prepares you for your, a percentage of it. And you've got to figure stuff out yourself. You also talk about being raised in a sex positive household and there's, you know, it's a small group that I know there, but it's, it's growing working on teaching people of how to be a sex positive parent. And that can scare a lot of people. Sharon, his daughter turned 13 last week. And so he's, he posted a picture and he's just kind of like panicked because it's like, <laughs> shit, it's getting real now. Like, we got to have these conversations. So when you talk about being raised in a sex positive household, What does that look like for people who aren't familiar with the the term?
1: So I talked a little bit about um, modesty and age appropriateness, right? I think one of the other things to really key into is that your children are very smart. They're very observant. So when you are, like, let's say you're not able to be fully out to your kids, right? Um, When you're building how you want to engage with them around uh, talking about how you're building your relationship and I say not fully out because like your your kids can know like you hang out with different people or like you you have different kinds of relationships with different people they don't need to know who you're sleeping with they don't need to know there's there's a certain amount of like how you talk to your children right so in that you can also talk to them like you're another person and you can get on the same page about what Going on. So, for instance, something I run into a lot in my client work is folks wondering, like, how do I have sex with kids in the house? And, like, how do I have sex and have a partner over if there's a child, you know, and like figuring that out. And, like, I totally get it. That can be a very complicated situation. And if your child is of a certain age, it is likely that they have been introduced to the idea of a sleepover. So, you can talk to your child about saying, like, hey, I'm going to have a sleepover. You know, we're probably going to like hang out and talk and have tea, maybe watch a movie, cuddle, things like you would do, but it's going to be boring for you. So, you know, or something to that effect, like so talking to your child about like why, you know, what, why you're doing something in a way that they can relate to. And then from there, you can gain a little bit more empathy around, because it's not necessarily about exposing to kids like to the sex right away. It's everything around the sex. Yeah. So it's it's about teaching them respect, uh, boundary setting, knowing what you want, and not being ashamed. One of the first moments that I, my my mom and I share the story back and forth all the time. Uh, my bio mom. So I'm sitting on the couch at about three years old, and I'm probably watching Fantasia. That was my favorite. And I'm just like playing with myself, just touching my vulva. And my mom walks in and she's like, oh, okay. And her reaction is very simple. It's very much like, sweetie, um, I know that, you know, I see you doing that. And there's a lot of reasons why people do that. And they're all fine. We're just going to do that in our bedroom with the door closed. And then we wash our hands afterwards. And so we focused on like, what do I need to know right now to keep myself safe and happy? You know, and not ashamed. And then from there, like we have, we've had multiple conversations about masturbation, but like that key initial like foundation of like non sensationalism, you know? Exactly. Like Mm -hmm. normalizing it, respecting it, making it part, making it a part of your everyday in a respectful way. And that's, that's one of the things that also I get can be hard for parents. Like, and, and growing up in this society, in Western American society, we either, Taboo sex, and then we also simultaneously use sex as a selling point as capitalism, so we get this like weird inundation of it that then we're supposed to not talk about or feel or feel good about, so I think it's there are a lot of tips and tricks that I go into in the book about how to create that kind of environment, but at the end of the day it's about normalizing and and just cel- you know celebrating the positivity thereof in balanced ways
0: well and I think that's really key i've heard some people liken it to talk you know drinking some families are like absolutely not never never give the kid a sip of alcohol you've got to wait till you're 21 and then you grow up and on your 21st birthday you go and get blackout drunk because it's you know finally accessible and you're sneaking it and you do all that versus you know okay it's a holiday celebration you get a little sip of red wine when you're 10 and stuff and just kind of normalizing it and then all of a sudden it's not this huge looming thing that you have all these emotions tied up around, but nowhere to talk about them with, you know, Uh, clearly you have a ton to offer. You offer tons of classes tons to get, I like, I'm like, okay, so we could carry this on for like an hour and a half. And you got me on a ramble train.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes. Thank you so much for, for getting into this stuff with me. You can catch me on my brand spanking new website, redone co-creation.com. That's K O E creation.com. I'm also co-create on social media at CoCreate on Instagram and FetLife and Twitter. And oh, I will be at my book release is happening over the weekend of Southwest Love Fest. So I will be in Tucson, Arizona reading at the event and I will be around there to connect with people. I'm currently accepting offers for book tour locations. It's going to be happening over 2019, maybe into 2020, because I want to take my time and do it right. So if you would like me to come see you, please reach out at cocreation at gmail.com.
0: You've been wonderful. I can't wait to read the book when it drops. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And you also, you're doing the book tour. Are you also teaching classes if people want to book with you for that?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Classes and speaking engagements are very, very welcome. You can see what I offer on my website.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Auntie
1: Vice. Hope to see you again soon.
2: Hi, you need music, a sound guy, or a podcast done? Well, why don't you call a serious production? Hi, my name is Sharon, founder of a serious production, a mobile DJ company and audio production for podcasts and music. Our DJ service handles birthdays, graduations, weekend weddings, weekday weddings, speaking events, etc. Our ASP staff has 15 years in DJ, audio, music, and podcasts. Our ASP staff will help you to create a combination of services which meets your unique needs. We can provide custom price bids for your jobs. We offer discounts for multiple services, repeated customers, and special sales. Please ask the staff about repeated business and discounts. Our podcast special we have now is recording, editing, mixing, and uploading up to 100 minutes of recording for $500. For more information, please call 707-867-1411. That's 707 867 one four one one, or come to our website, a serious production. com. That's a serious production. com. Can't wait to hear from you. Thank you.
0: Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Tops. Thanks for staying with us through the break. We are here today with Amy Estes. Welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Amy is a comedian and a writer. Some of you may have known her through a BuzzFeed video that went viral. Some of you may know her on her blog for Medium about intuitive eating. So I reached out to her because there's just so much to talk about.
3: (laughs) Uh, I'll never stop talking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of want to start with. It was probably two months ago. Initially, you put up a post about what comedy taught you about your body. And as as the three of us can all probably experience being on stage, as you know, female-bodied comics, people feel a, a need to comment on your body. But what did it? That doesn't necessarily teach you anything about your body. So how did comedy teach you about your body? And then what did you learn?
3: I think for me, it actually. It started one night I did a set and I was having a hard time connecting with a room which I think we've all probably experienced when you're trying to like make a connection and so I threw out like this easy joke about my body. I was talking about how we see so many like food motivated t-shirts in the world and I said something like, "Obviously, I'm food motivated too." And I watched the audience crack up, but then I also watched some women in the audience be like, "Ooh, like that was not kind of what they were expecting from me. And it didn't sit great with me. I was like almost in tears when I got off stage, like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. And then um I watched Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, which I think is like an incredible piece of comedy and storytelling. And I think what really hit me the most was that I'm a queer person and I'm a person who is bigger than the average person. And I think that so often we're already denigrated by society that I didn't need to contribute to that for myself on stage or to the people in the audience. And that words are power. And that's something that I believe that I had never connected it in terms of how I spoke about myself and my own body, because so much of comedy is self-deprecation and that's a really common thing. And sometimes that can be funny, but for some reason something hit in me that like I was just kind of done doing that. And In terms of what it taught me, I think it's still teaching me a lot. Um, I think that a lot of times in comedy, I see women who are hot chicks who really rely on this idea of being like, I'm super hot and more power to them. Like, there's nothing wrong with, you know, I'm a feminist, like, express yourself how you want to. But I think that when it's held up as like somehow you're more superior than I am because your body looks a certain way, that's where it starts to be problematic. And I don't want to contribute to that or have that hoisted upon me.
0: So. You come to this revelation, and now you've changed your whole style of eating, right? Yes. What is intuitive eating? Because for me, that would be just opening the refrigerator going, yeah, sounds good. And I'm not sure that's always the best choice. How does it work for you?
3: I mean, I'll give like a brief diet history. So I think I went on my first diet when I was in high school. And from that time, I have been severely underweight and undernourished and unhealthy to um at a higher end of weight that's appropriate for my body to a point where it was causing health issues. I worked with a food coach a couple of years ago named Nikki Stern and she's incredible. She's still a dear friend of mine, but basically her work was all centered around like what is not nourishing or fulfilling in your life beyond food. Like why is this continuing to be an issue and um, As someone who literally has been on a diet since she was 16, it was like, okay, I don't quite know what's working. And I did all of this work with her. It's when I started comedy. I happened to meet my partner during that time. It was like all of these things really started to fall into place. And I was able to get some clarity around food and what was going on. But then earlier this year, I decided to try a very specific way of eating and I'm not going to... <laughs> mention it just because I think that can be really triggering, but it resulted for me in a full body rash and a UTI that turned into a kidney infection due to proteins. And so, yeah, it was rough. And so for me, my immediate reaction was like, oh my God, I'm going to try this other diet that I've been on before. And I swear like something happened where I was just like, God, are you going to really keep just banging your head against this same wall. This is such a waste of time. I feel like in our current political climate, there are 1 million more important things that I could be doing and advocating for. And so I have a book called Intuitive Eating. It's by two nutritionists. And then I decided to get the workbook that went along with it. And basically, intuitive eating is just working through all of these other steps. So it starts with rejecting the diet mentality. So working towards removing that moral value of food like this is good food this is bad food or i'm good or bad as a result of what i've eaten honoring your hunger and a number of other steps and then it closes with gentle nutrition so you said it might be like just opening the refrigerator and being like cool i'm gonna eat whatever and truly at the start that is part of it and it's not meant to be a permanent free-for-all but it is meant to heal those parts of you that's been like oh i could never buy candy at the grocery store. I could never go here and eat this. And so it's basically removing weight loss as the priority and replacing a nourishing relationship with food in your body. And it's it's a journey. It's wild. Like <laughs> I went to the store my first week and you know that really good soft strawberry licorice, like little bites. I love that shit. Like anything gummy. And I never let myself buy it because like you're a person of size, you don't get to buy candy in public. And I was like, fuck it. And I bought it and I ate it and I was like, okay, that was great. Do I need to do it again? Probably not. But it like healed something in me in a a weird way to be like, yeah, I'm going to eat this in public. And so I think it will be a battle the rest of my life.
4: (laughs) Can I just say too, um, as (laughs) a big girl, um, when I see somebody like you express discomfort About your size and call yourself a big girl. And this is just for me. I don't consider you what a big girl would be. Like, I look at someone like you and I think that you're like average to me. Like, I wish I could be your size. So I feel like when you have expressed that, um, it made me want to hug you first and then go, okay. I didn't, because I get stuck in my own way of thinking that I don't think that how could somebody like you feel like me? And I feel like as a person, I think that's kind of ignorant on my part and presumptuous to think that just because I am a certain way that how on earth could anybody else feel this way? because you're not this way. So thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that um, with all of us, because that just shows how strong you are as a person. And it made me feel like, okay, wow, how narrow minded have I been in my way of thinking and projecting onto other people and not even realizing it. So I thank you for that because it takes a really you know, strong individual to say, Hey, what I was doing wasn't working, but now I'm going to educate myself and share my journey with you and show you how we can move in a better direction. So, uh, thank you. I appreciate that.
3: I think that's so interesting because I look at people that I know who are much, you know, more whatever they're, they weigh less than I do. And that's really all that it is, is that they weigh less. But I think that because I've had the opportunity to be both very, very thin and you know, a higher weight than I am now, what I've realized is a couple of things. Number one, like I don't know anyone really who doesn't dislike their body, which is a really shitty club to be a part of. And I think it's most people. And I think oftentimes we say like most women, but I would also argue that it's most men too. I don't know very many men that don't have body issues. I think it's, I think it's like the worst part of patriarchal society that we're given one model of like what's supposed to be beautiful and what's attractive. And I think it harms everyone, even if you look that way. I think there's a lot of pressure. But also, like, I think that it's one of the reasons that I am really working hard not to talk poorly about my body in front of other people. Because like, when I hear my friend who is considerably smaller than me be like, Oh, I've gained some weight. Look at my thighs you're much kinder. You want to give her a hug. I want to like punch her in the face and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, well, yeah, you I used to get that
4: way too. I used to get angry. Yeah. Cause I was like, how dare you? Cause I'm like, I can't even buckle the sink belt on the airplane. And you're like, "Oh my God, I can't fit into a size too. But then again, I'm doing what somebody else is doing to me, to somebody else. And I'm like, Oh, I'm trying to
3: like, yeah, like redirect that rage towards like the society that promotes that in all of us and for, and for everyone. And so there's, I reposted this thing yesterday that was like, I, a woman said that her friend, whenever she's feeling inferior in her body, she asked who is profiting off of this emotion. And it's true. Like there's always, you know, capitalist and patriarchal society profits off us feeling ugly and in too big or too small or too whatever. It's always all of these messages and that's how they stay in power. And I think it's a really, uh, common bond that most of us have, but it's also a really shitty one. <laughs> like, let's not. Well, that's you why I'm like
4: following you online, and I like to read what you Thank post you. on Instagram and whatnot. Because there are days when I'm like, Ugh, and she'll post something about, I just went and did something positive with my time. I went and enjoyed some nature. I did some tea, and I just and I love that because instead of just sitting in a funk. You, and in a weird spot you're like okay i'm going to take charge of this and hey come along for thank the adventure you. so i really appreciate that and i really i applaud you again cuz it's i really think it's hey. great that you're sharing that with all of us so thank you
0: well and so much of that bond is based on shaming you know um, oh my
4: gosh i didn't even think of that you
0: know it's based on what are you ashamed of and for those of us who cross multiple lines of things we've been told we've been ashamed of either you know we're gender nonconforming or we're queer or we're a person of color and you're big and it just it's all about you're wrong you shouldn't be here you don't fit. and it seeps into everybody it was literally one of our earlier episodes i interviewed alice from alice in bondage land which is a porn site beautiful woman who does these amazing you know sex videos kink videos and stuff and she does a lot in public. Like she'll go out and do a full bondage scene on the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff like that. And we were talking, she's like, yeah, but I'm ashamed to eat by myself in public. What? And it's like, there's so much shame around Mm -hmm. food. That's crazy.
3: There's, there's, I think that that's like, that shame is such an important layer because I didn't come out as queer until I was 30, even though I've known like my entire life, it's not been a secret, but I think so much of a, so many of us feel like our body is betraying us. Like if we're sick or if we're, Queer, if we're a person of color, that puts us at risk. Not that I am, I would never compare <laughs> my struggles to that, but like it puts people of color at risk at higher proportions. If you're trans or not falling on the binary, there's so many things that not only make you, you know, in danger frequently, but it feels shitty. And yeah. I think that for a long time for me, my queerness felt like yet another way that my body had betrayed me. Like not only was I a, not a tiny, dick thin, wayfish girl, but also like my you know, sexual attraction was bad and wrong. And
4: that's... Somebody um, posted, one of my little friends posted a a, a neat little analogy. And it was on the outside, I think it said peas. And on the inside of the can, it said carrot. There was carrots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it said, um, you can't turn the carrots into peas. And you can't get mad at the label that was placed on that can if it was wrong and you didn't feel comfortable. So accept that can for what it is and don't put a label on it. And I thought the fact that somebody could put something in such a beautiful way that you're, oh, I get it. Okay. Right. Because a lot of people are like, well, why do you change? Why do you do this? And it's, You don't get it until it comes down to it's the carrots in the can it's um, and the peas being labeled on the outside because maybe you just never felt like a pea. Well, I think coming
0: to accept your body, we tie it to food, which is awful because food is the way you connect with people. You sit down, you break bread, and our cultural traditions are around food. Somebody's had a death in a family, you take them a casserole birthday, you bake them a cake, right? We have all of these rituals around food, but we also tie so much shame to eating and having food. So the more shame you have around that, the
4: more isolating that is. That's why I love your recipes. Not only do you make it fun, but I've noticed too that when you eat um, your food, you feel happy. And there's actually a book too, I think like Water for Chocolate, where there's emotions that are going along with the food the whole time. So I feel like if you are can put yourself in a position where, um, like you said, and like you said, that food can be a positive thing, it doesn't have to be about rewarding. It's just about nourishment for your mind, body, and soul. That's why they tell you when you put a, a spread of food out, make sure that there's to different colors because the colors get your brain going. It gets your salivary glands going, you know, and just have fun with it. You don't have to go, oh gosh, I have to eat rice and beans every single day, but you can switch up and go, okay, I can do this rice and I can put some cilantro in it and make it spicy, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, I was reading something, I forgot, but it was like, you know, my mom is one of those people that makes everything beautiful. when we come over, it's like this lovely meal and she organizes everything so wonderfully. And for so many years, I've spent time being like, no, I can't eat that. Or no, I can't eat sugar. or No, I can't eat this. And this thing that I read was basically like, when you say no to food that other people have lovingly prepared for you, thinking that I'm like, you know, I have self-control or I'm falling under my o- my own authority, you're actually... Submitting to like such a larger authority by decline, like by denying yourself that joy. And I refuse to think that, like, you know, my mom's like beautifully and lovingly prepared cookies that she made for me because she loves me are somehow harmful to me when it's like, no, that she, it's it's prepared with love and care. And that is, it's such a connection. And I think that when we take away that connection from food, that's where things you know, fall apart a little bit. Like I'm someone who used to eat a lot in secret and in shame. And just by being like, screw that. I want to go out to ice cream and I'm going to eat it in public. Like that alone is so healing rather than like, I'm going to get it and I'm going to eat it in the dark of night in my home. And like, no one's going to know about it. I'm going to make sure like by just being willing to be like who you are in public, it helps to stamp out that shame. Well,
0: and I I think people, you know, don't think of it as a revolutionary act, but Women who are eating food and enjoying it in public and not like just picking at their salad leaves trying to look dainty, but like, I wanna eat this cheeseburger, I'm gonna eat this cheeseburger. I wanna eat this quinoa, fuck it, I'll eat quinoa despite the number of jokes about it, right? Is really revolutionary in a culture that says your worth is inversely proportional to your waist size. And that, you know, you're you're supposed to shun all of this. It's like, no, you know.
3: Well, and also I feel like the more I do things publicly it does feel like a revolution because for me it's like I'm just I'm I'm really at this point and I think it's a combination of like the Trump administration and some personal bullshit I went through this year and everything else being like you know what? I'm just I'm done like I just I don't want to listen to anybody else I don't I want to do what I want to do I want to support other badass women doing what they want to do and I'm just kind of over it and that's really it and I think that You know, at the end of the day, like learning to listen to what I want and trust my own body is such a, you know, and like my body's badass. I go to spin class every morning at 6 a.m. I don't necessarily look like I go to spin class every morning at 6 a.m., but like, join me on a bike, fuckers, let's do it. Like, you'll be surprised. You know, I teach yoga and I practice yoga and I can go on a hike. And like, for all intents and purposes, my body is never sick. I've never broken a bone, I've never been ill. Like, this body is working and it's doing a great job. So like, let's be proud of it rather than being like, Oh God, you're not exactly what I want you to look like. Like it's, it's getting it done in
0: a really great way. So why? And speaking of, you know, learning to embrace your body and going with intuitiveness, how has it impacted your relationship with your partner?
3: My partner is like, I mean, I just think she's the greatest human being (laughs) She's pretty awesome. Uh, awesome. She's awesome. Um, her name is Amy also,
4: which we like to laugh
3: about. But I just think that's um, the most yeah. adjo- I just love that. <laughs> we are the aligned yeah. so
4: perfectly that she that the universe even I made mean, it, so you have the same name. That's just amazing. It's she's the best
3: person and the best thing ever. But I think that what's so interesting about Amy is I'm like a This Amy is like a goals oriented, like, I'm going to push myself and I have a star chart and like, I'm going to do it all. And what's really great about Amy is she's very much like, be gentle on yourself. Like, do you need to rest? Do you need to take care of yourself? And so she's this like very comforting kind of softening to how I tend to be a little bit more aggressive. And so, in terms of how it's affected us, I think that you know, we're both really gentle with each other. Like an early promise we made to one another was like, there will be absolutely no body shaming in any sort of context argument, whatever else there is. It's just, there's just no place for it in a female and female relationship. So we, we will not do it. And if there's any like phrase that could be misinterpreted, like, oh my God, does that sound like I was talking about this? We clarified immediately, but that's just a thing that's never existed for us. But in terms of how it supports our relationship, like, she's just my biggest cheerleader always. Like, she's like, of course you're gorgeous. And of course, like what's wrong with you. Um, But it's also like, you know, my safest place to talk about those feelings. And we can say like, I'm having issues with my body. Can we talk about it? And then the other person is, you know, there to listen and to encourage and whatever else, but it's already just such a positive space, And she's a really good balance for me. I like to think I like push her a little bit to try some things and, Live a little more, uh, and she reminds me, like, no, we can watch Grey's Anatomy on the couch and like <laughs> calm down, <laughs> like that's fine. So I'm lucky.
0: Oh, well, we're coming into the end of the interview. If people want to find you, if they want to see you perform, if they want to support you, if they want to read your stuff, where do they go? Um, so I can
3: be found for my comedy at my my comedy Instagram is at Amy's Got Jokes my personal Instagram where I always link my writing and also comedy stuff. And just my, my own journey is at underscore Amy underscore Melissa. I'm Amy Estes on Facebook. You can find me just about anywhere. And then I'm on Medium. If you search my name, uh, my pieces will come up. But Thanks so much for having me.
2: Has been a Fat Chicks on Top presentation, with your co-hosts Auntie Vice and Wendy Lewis. Sound provided by Sharon Smith of A Productions. All things Fat Chicks can be found on our website at FatChicksOnTop.com. That's FatChicksOnTop.com, or check out our social media for more information. That's Fat Girls on Top on Twitter. And Fat Chicks on top on Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. Please review our previous episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or all podcast streaming services. Please support the Fat Chicks by buying us a tea or purchasing our merch on our website. And thank you for your support.